Brad Mackay has published in the Globe and Mail, the Toronto Star, the National Post, the Ottawa Citizen, the Canadian Medical Association Journal, CBC Arts Online, Quill Inquire, En Route Now, and iMagazine. You have recently co-authored a book on one of Canada's most revered, renowned... I think best cartoonists, and maybe at the same time uh, least appreciated until now. His name is Doug Wright. Yes. And the name of the book is... The Collective Doug Wright, the subtitle being Canada's Master Cartoonist. It's the result of like five years, I think, of work between Seth and I, who's a cartoonist himself. Perhaps Canada's best-known cartoonist right now. In his own right, he's probably one of Canada's current master cartoonists. The book is essentially his curating a look at this cartoonist that inspired him. So he's collected all these things from bookstores collated it all and the first time he invited me into his house he started going through all of his stuff and he had little piles of stuff when he handed me these it totally triggered a memory the most interesting of which being the cover of one of them had a, a strip on it that threw me for a loop the two nipper kids in the family throwing rocks it was you know side of a river and the car was parked there and the mum was in the car and the dad was there and they were throwing rocks in the water and you turn over the back the rocks this whole time have been falling on these two fishermen down below on the water and these guys are like enraged and they're like storming up the side the dad is like horrified and the kids are like hiding behind the car laughing their head off the point is is that when i saw this i was immediately kind of befuddled and confused i said this and like the same thing happened to me as a kid and then as the day went on i realized that it was a false memory i had absorbed it into my own because mm. it was so convincing and that's when it dawned on me and that doug wright was a great cartoonist and a great communicator and there were a number of those over the years as i looked through his complete works there were a number of strips that just blew me away because i had absorbed them some of them were just universal and then some of them were ones i just somehow taken as my own obviously that would constitute an important part of the definition of a good cartoonist, someone who can capture something that is so familiar to yeah. you that you adopt it as your own. Yeah, it was almost like he was more of a documentarian than he was a cartoonist, because yeah. he started the strip in 49 uh, when he was a bachelor without kids, and it was a strip about this hellion child that actually preceded like Dennis the Menace in Peanuts by a few years. The main character in the strip was this bald-headed kid. Uh, kind of a toe-headed kid, I suppose. Maybe, you know, like his head was kind of bean-shaped. And a lot of people over the years thought he had ripped off Charlie Brown, who's also a famous... There's a long history, actually, a long pedigree of oh, comic book characters with bald heads. Well, sure, the, the original comic book character, uh, the yellow kid, was a bald-headed, toe-headed kid. And then Charlie Brown, and then Sluggo, Nancy Comics, he was bald, wasn't he? Anyway, so people thought, but he wasn't. He came, he came before then. Then over the years, yeah, as he had a family, he started the strip became observational. Sounds like Lynn Johnson. A bit, yeah, and actually Lynn Johnston, it's funny you say that, because she, she was nice enough to do the intro to the book, because mm -hmm. Doug Wright was one of her two main inspirations growing up. Her dad used to sit with her and read comic strips, and that was one of his favorite, and he used to break down why the strip worked, and why it was good, and why it was important. It was a pantomime strip, because he was trying to kind of appeal to French and English, it had no words in it, right? So also, it also operated on a level that kids and adults could read. I do it with my my kids uh, just follow it so you it can be understood on both languages from both kind of generations anyways he 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 documented post-war canadian family life sort of, sort of like a social historian kind of and it, it, he didn't dress it up with if you look at dennis the menace and uh realm kind of comics blondie 
you know, there's a certain amount of soap opera and there's a certain amount of kind of gag humor or a certain amount of uh, cutesy, uh, saccharine kind of stuff. And that never happened. I think it was a combination of kind of his British upbringing and his dedication to, like, stuff that really happened. He would show the good with the bad. It was real life. Happy times in the family and the, the less... Uh, it was almost less, more uh, the opposite. The annoying thing kids do... <laughs> The kids were brats, but you, as a kid, I would look at it, and I thought it was a riot. I identified with yeah. it, because I was a little boy, and there were two little boys in the strip, and I had an older brother. So, like I said, like that other strip here, I thought it was hilarious. So I would read them, and I would do the absorb. And this is in the 70s, I suppose, because you, you could strip for like three decades. Mm-hmm. As an adult, reading them with a nipper of my own at home, a little boy who's three years old, and an older daughter, I identified with it on a completely different level, right? My mom's generation and my, my aunt and uncle... And all these people remember the strip extremely well, still, as does Seth's uh, mom. You know, you pick it up every week, and yes, the kids were doing all these horrible things, but there was like an understanding of somebody else out there. I'm not the only one (laughs) whose kid cut up the curtains or whatever. It offered, I think, some comfort to that whole post-war kind of baby boom parents, is that it shows the Canadian family at a particular time. It's clearly Canadian, but it's not, like, self-consciously Canadian. It was, like, pre-1967, like, the book covers up to 62. In the strip, it'll take his kids skating, or every now and then you'll see them with a, a Canadian's thing on, or playing in the street, or you'll notice he's at a CFL game or something, because he's just documenting life. And it lives as a, to me anyways, it's a, as a whole, it's a beautiful little snapshot of Canadian life back then. Was he in all the major newspapers? Yeah, he had millions of readers in his peak in the, I guess, late 60s, early 70s. He was right across Canada. He was in uh, French papers for a good stretch of time as well. In the beginning, he was in, like, the biggest circulation paper in England for a while. And they they marketed the character as Charlie Boy, because it didn't have a name originally, because Prince Charles was, like, two months old. So they marketed it as that, and then some, I don't know what happened, why it stopped. But in the end, he was always trying to push for a more lucrative deal in the States. This book was a, it originally began as a book about the history of Canadian cartooning, seen through kind of the prism of these seven cartoonists. The group that, of seven. It was supposed to be called the Gang of Seven. Okay. That was what the book proposal was. That was based on a comment that Chris Ware said to Seth the first time he, like 10 years ago. He went to the AGO and he, he was talking to Seth. He said, boy, you know, the Gang of Seven, you know, they were really something. A group of seven, they were really great. So he was like, well, Gang of Seven would be a good name for this because there were seven cartoonists that Seth was interested in. But we tried to pitch that about ten years ago, I guess. Not a lot of bites, so... Just because our this program is primarily oriented toward the book, I wonder if you could speak to the relationship between the cartoonist and the book. First of all, it's a magic time for comics now and graphic novels. I think the interest, kind of a younger generation in comics and graphic novels in general has sparked a uh, complete renaissance in cartooning. There's more kids getting into cartooning seriously at a younger age. There's a great school in Vermont that's dedicated to to comics, so you've got this huge wellspring of talent coming up. There's a number of ways you can get into it. You can be a cartoonist who draws pictures based on something somebody else has written, which is probably the most prevalent or most common You have writers who are very well-known who don't draw at all. Alan Moore, who did, like, Watchmen and From Hell, some very well-regarded comics and graphic novels. He will write the scripts, and he will give it to somebody else, and he will give them the directions, and then the cartoonist will draw that. Sandman with Neil Gaiman, another example. 
he will write it and give the person a detailed script and then he'll draw it and we'll go back and forth and work it out that way. And there's certainly some fine comics that have been done that way, but to me, it's like the, uh, the auteur theory of, of comics. I much prefer picking up something where, where somebody has done everything, balanced that, and it's a much harder thing to do, but I appreciate that more, like it feels more honest. Mouse was like that, you know, Seth's work is like that, Chester's work, Chris Ware is a perfect example of that, Dan Clouds, I can give a million names, but that to me, in terms of the book, the previous example I gave you, is, to me, is somehow still rooted in kind of the uh, factory system of comic books from the 40s and 50s. Uh, DC and Marvel, when they started up, superhero comics, you would have an assembly line. You know, you had a writer, you had an editor, you had somebody who drew it, you had some, you drew the pencil, somebody who inked it, yeah. somebody who lettered it, somebody who colored it, and it would just be boom, 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 and that's because it was faster that way. One of my famous superhero cartoonists of all time is Jack Kirby, and he never inked his own stuff. He did Fantastic Four and tons of stuff, but that was just the way it was back then. Cartoonist, for me, when I think cartoonist, it's writer-cartoonist. It's one and the same. And those are the books I gravitate towards. They know what the image is supposed to look like more than anyone else. Well, it's an alchemy. I mean, I've tried it myself. It's extremely difficult, and uh, it has to look effortless, right? Like any good art, if you're reading a great novel, you don't want to know like the mechanics of what's going through. I mean, that's, mm. that's kitschy. Thomas Pynchon is a bit like that. Experimenting with the form and... Which is fine. Like, I like David Foster Wallace. I think mm. he's... But at his worst, it's... You know what I mean? It interferes with the narrative. It interferes with the narrative, and you're not thinking about the people. Because to me, great art and great literature, it has to be human, you know, it has to make you feel more human. You should look at a piece of art, you should feel more human. You look at a book, it should make you... What do you mean by more human? Just, there should be a human experience there. Doesn't mean you have to cry, but, you know, there has to be something there that, that moves you uh, to some degree, that connects you there. And all great art does that for me. And great cartoonists. And great cartoonists. Doug Wright makes me feel more human. Like there's something being shared there in that weekly strip we put out for 32 years. Taken as a whole, it's moving. Mouse is a great example of that. It's an honest book. I don't think he could have done that if somebody else illustrated it or if somebody else wrote it. Yeah. I don't think it would have reached the same level. It's more personal. I'm speaking with Brad Mackay, who's a cartoon historian based in Ottawa, Canada. One of the things that I find, as, as much as anything, a distraction are illustrations in you know, the 19th century novels that you, you see in some of the older editions. They interfere with your imaginative conception of what these characters look like. And yet they're in there. Why are they in there? I don't know. That's a good question. I, I think that's a, I think that's a criticism of comics has had for years as well. Is that I mean that's one of the great sort of the lessons about writing, right? If you're writing a novel, I don't know who said it, but it's a common thing where you know don't describe what the person looks like. Let the person fill in. That's the great reading, in particular reading prose, is, is in a way very creative because mm -hmm. what I take from reading Tolstoy and what you take from reading Tolstoy. If we sat down and talked about the main characters, we would see them differently because of our own experiences, and certain parts of it are going to hit us differently. If you reread it over the years, it's the same thing. And I think comics have been uh, criticized for that as well because they're they can fill be in too, the gaps too much. They can be too explicit. The genius of good comics is what goes on. It's like in a you know they say in a book you know what goes on between the lines you know like stuff that's going on. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing that happens with comics. It goes on between the panels you know. It's a sequential narrative. So as you're reading, 
it's the magic is there is, is what's not being said what your mind is filling in see they're not drawing they can't draw everything they can't draw they everything and they're not being editing. obvious right they're not being too literal it's like the off-camera effect in old movies right where stuff would happen and it's much more horrific if it happens off camera than showing everything explicitly mm -hmm. like in a horror film you know, they'll let your mind fill in the blanks. I still remember listening to The Exorcist on television once. My parents were gone, my older brother was downstairs with his girlfriend. The Exorcist was on television for the first time. And I sat at the top of the stairs to listen because I knew it was this horrific thing. And my pajamas listening to it. And of course, it's like a horrifying film. But I didn't actually see it. And then years later when I saw it, I didn't. it wasn't scary at all. Um, so how would you then describe the relationship between the, the writer and the cartoonist? The cartoonist gives his or her own take on the on the script. I think it's always a compromise in terms of an artistic vision. I think as soon as you start bringing in other people, like a film would. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I've heard Tom DeSillo. He said it's the most irritating thing in the world. I wish I never got into directing films because that's a huge compromise. You, it's a huge team effort with a huge crew and tons of people. Well, I mean, the the writer is a tyrant, and a director. Good writers are tyrants. Yeah. Good writers. The director needs to be a tyrant too. His or her artistic vision is what ultimately ends up on the celluloid. Yeah, ideally. Preston Sturges is one of my favorite American directors. I think he's a riot. Made extremely funny films. He was both an angel and a devil because he was the sweetest guy and he created this really light, uh, very human comedic films. Yet he was a devil on the set. And I think it's the same thing with cartooning. I think as a lot of these guys, SF is a perfect example, he's been working on a graphic novel that's been serialized, a comic called Palookaville, which he's been out for 12 issues, 13 issues over the space of 15 or 20 years. And he's done this, you know, in between doing illustration work and doing other stuff. He could probably get it out faster if he wrote the script down and farmed it out, hired another artist or cartoonist to do it. But it wouldn't be the same work, right? It'd be a diminished work. I think for him, it's very important to keep to that vision. So he's put it out in small chapters over the years, and eventually be collected into one, one big book, and um, it'll be worth it, you know. It's almost a life. Well, it is a life's work. Yeah, and I think he understands that as a result, he's not going to get the same amount of work out that, say, a, a novelist would. So this is how long, seven, eight years it takes me to produce the graphic novel that I want, and, and that's the way it is. But it's going to be quality stuff. I mean, Mouse is another example that took the better part of at least a decade, if not more. There's a difference between an illustrator, Arthur Rackham Shepard, who did Winnie the Pooh. Yeah, beautiful illustration. These people are not cartoonists. No, but illustration is linked there's, there's antecedents there in illustration. I mean, editorial cartooning is mm. definitely have an illustrative link in the 19th century, where you have a number of pictures with words underneath. The golden age of comic strips, 1890s forward, starting with The Yellow Kid, and then the early part of the century, you had just an explosion of these Sunday comics and daily comics, like uh, Little Nemo and Slumberland by Winsor McKay. And these are people who, when you look at these things, they're coming from a completely different different inspiration now. I mean, uh, most cartoonists are steeped in 50-odd years of superhero comics. Back then, you've got people who were inspired by all the great illustrators and artists of the day. So when they approached a, a page, they approached it as a work of art. And that goes right up to Frank King and Ghastly Nally. They aspired to something different. So, I mean, I think there's a clear connection there from kind of classic illustrators to early comic strips. I mean, another example is Tarzan strips, Flash Gordon, all of those had a beautiful illustrative look. They're almost like books. Prince Valiant by a Canadian, actually. Born and raised out east. I think he died out there. He moved back. 
I remember looking at that as a kid, and these gorgeous illustrations. There were no panels, there were no captions, so it wasn't like a traditional comic. Once you go from comic strips, which were very well regarded, and they were the popular entertainment uh, for about 30 years. Everybody read them. And they weren't seen as lowbrow. No, some were, I guess, some of the adventure strips, maybe. But they were family entertainment, they were popular entertainment. Little Ark Nanny, which is one of my favorite uh, comic strips, there was a point where Sandy was, he was extremely popular in the, during the Depression. One plot line where Sandy, Little Orphan Annie's dog, disappeared, is, is lost and feared dead. The president at the time, Roosevelt, he publicly stated that he was like angry at Harold Gray, the cartoonist. Oh, okay. He publicly sent him a telegram or a letter <laughs> or something like that, telling him to save Sandy. It was in the common parlance, it was extremely popular. Yeah. Then, you know, radio and television debuted, they were still popular. And then comic books debuted around the same time. And then comic books, you have the same sort of thing. You have superheroes, cowboy, romance, funny animal. And then what happens is that is that these comics, uh, the comic strips, are then put into annuals. Yeah, that was really popular in Herman. Herman, that's actually very still extremely popular. And Giles, who was really well known, I guess he was an editorial cartoonist, but but he he would have annuals and his stuff was collected. You see that with Lynn Johnson and stuff. You see the stuff that's kind of collected. Rupert, too. Rupert the Bear. Rupert the Bear was very popular. Beano, that was another one. The original comic books referred to as floppies in the industry. They were just, you know, 32-page to 48-page collections of comic strips. So you would get... So some of you couldn't pick up the paper, couldn't follow it, could pick this up once a month and it would have seven pages. It would be devoted to Little Orphan Annie, seven pages would be devoted to Buck Rogers, and you could collect them and do it that way. The whole collecting scene was, was huge as well. Yeah. I don't know if that's still as prevalent or not. Speaking of some, a recovering comic book collector, <laughs> I'm in my 10th year collector-free. <laughs> I guess it still exists. That became fandom, as they call it, in comic books. Arguably, really started in the late 60s, early 70s. You had a huge boom uh, in superhero comics. Like, like I was saying before, from kind of 39 forward, you had this blossoming of comic books where you had original material coming out, and they became very popular. 39 was the year that uh, Superman became very popular. 39 was the year also of The Wizard of Oz, the movie. Yeah, that's true. And yeah. also, I think, On with the Wind was 39 as well. It's, of course, it was beginning of the Second World yeah, War. that's the other thing, too, yeah. yeah. So people are looking for maybe cheap entertainment, entertainment yeah. escapism. Yeah. You would have a, a wide range of stuff. In the 60s, you had a generation of people who had been raised on them. You know, the comics would sell hundreds of thousands of copies. They sold way more back then than they ever do now. Uh, even this thing called fandom started up where people would have little comic book collecting clubs and they would gather and they would talk about their favorite comics and people would, they would trade issues and it's like it was almost like the beginning of kind of a comic book criticism and then they started publishing little uh, little magazines or zines or these uh, discussed it and that kind of went from there into the 70s and 80s and I think I was at like the, the perfect age for that to obsess to, to take the comic book as a fetish stick item and uh, covet it and you know put it in a board with the bag a bit like you know people who are into books yeah. just the same thing with taking a book and wrapping a mylar sleeve on it you know yeah. and it was the same thing and you collect condition yeah. yeah it was all about condition and you had the grade and blah 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 and I did that and I still have you know, I want to know the number of long boxes the number of boxes full of comics that I had but a lot of I had a lot of them and that kind of waned in the 90s and I think it still exists to some degree I think you've got grown men who obsess about the quality of stuff but I've long since 
a lot of crap behind. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Mostly it's because of the graphic novel, the rise well, of the graphic novel. Well, I was going to say, I mean, that's a whole the new book. area to collect. Yes. Um, well, because they are collected now. In yeah. the past, 20 years ago, even when I was collecting the stuff by cartoonists I respect, I'm lucky enough to call kind of friends now, like Chester Brown and Seth, those were originally comics, and they came out in comic book form, alternative comics, kind of the dawn of alternative comics 20, 20 years ago, modern alternative comics. I would still go to the comic book store because it's the only place I can get them, and I would collect them and hoard them. And I mean, those individual comics, actually, even now, are kind of a thing of the past in terms of alternative comics. Mm-hmm. People now, they put stuff out either in annuals and hardcover books, or they complete the whole work, put it out as a book, just like a novelist would. So, in other words, the cartoonists drawing a, a strip in a newspaper, they, you know, the better ones went directly then to, to doing comic books. Now they're going directly to doing graphic novels, which in a sense is a, is a much extended well, comic it's a, book. Yeah, it's an evolution. It's a fully formed thing. I mean, going back to Jack Kirby is a good example. It's not like a graphic novel just started as a book um, in the last 20 years. But it does have that feel to it. I mean, it's it seems to, in the last five to ten years, yeah. suddenly is is huge. Or at least it's in Cheap, the yeah. consciousness now of it's become many acceptable. more people. It's become acceptable. It's, graphic novels, for lack of a better term, have become cool. You know, there was a time if you were on public transportation, like this morning I was reading a comic going into work, and there was a time uh, when you were self-conscious about that, and you wouldn't read a, 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 a book that had pictures in it like that. But... It's cool to be doing that. It's supposed to read a book. It's probably the inverse. Why would you read a book with type? Which is Bizarro. It's a positive thing. Bizarro was another uh, cartoon. <laughs> Don't get me started on Bizarro. <laughs> okay. He is a well. Actually, there's a comic strip called Bizarro. Yeah. But there's a notorious character from the Superman comic called Bizarro oh, as well, okay. who my daughter is obsessed with right now. <laughs> in terms of the book and in terms of the graphic novel, I think that's something that a lot of cartoonists, classic cartoonists from the first wave of cartoonists who are working in kind of a genre heavy medium like superhero comics for instance they always had their eye on that Jack Kirby Will Eisner all these guys when they were writing comics they felt it diminished their vision and maybe they looked at it as just being an episode in a larger story Jack Kirby did that he was an artist originally then he was a writer artist he's uh, from Brooklyn I believe yeah. Bronx I'm not sure if he went to School of Visual Arts in New York or not, but mm-hmm. just always drew, read widely, read a lot of uh, fantasy, did a lot of research actually for his work. The Mighty Thor, you know, he would go and read Norse mythology to work that all in. Yeah. And he loved the popular entertainment of it. He loved reading things that kids wanted to pick up and read and college students would read at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but he always imagined everything he tackled to be as a full story and he yeah. was constantly frustrated and hamstrung by editors and the industry. He would have an artistic vision. If I can use a nerdy example, one of his cult comics called The Eternals, put out in the 70s, which is based on a very popular book called The Whole Theory of the Book. Now I can't remember. Part of modern religion were actually aliens that came and visited years ago. Now I'm not going to. Somebody will know this. But anyway, he based it on on that as this self existing world, published it with Marvel, which published Fantastic Four and the Hulk and all these things. The deal was I will write this for you, but. No, there will be no crossovers with other characters. This is going to be a self-existing universe, and I have this idea. And he always wanted them to collect it, and of course, didn't sell as well for whatever reason. Was it a? It was a comic originally, just like a normal comic. But it was an ongoing thing. It was an ongoing thing, but it lasted maybe twenty issues. But he never fully saw his vision. So, in other words, what he really wanted was a publisher with the vision to do a graphic novel. Yeah, he always wanted, but he was just a generation 
too soon. Too soon. They start out great, you know. He was a grand visionary, beautiful artist, you know, big, exhilarating to read, very muscular, very, you know, if you like comics at all. Mm. And when I say comics, I mean, you know, comics, comics, genre comics, superhero comics. It gripped you as a kid. It was fascinating. But yeah, it, it's a shame now. I mean, it's always reading his stuff. It's, it's exciting to read, but it's always a disappointment because you know it's going to just end without it being off. finished. It's going to yeah. tail off. Luckily, that doesn't happen now. I mean, now people can sit down and spend a year writing, drawing a complete comic and having it. And luckily, actually, Kirby's stuff is all being reproduced in collections now. Even the most obscure stuff, you can find any of that stuff now. So I highly recommend you seeking it out. Well, in fact, that leads me to a, a closing question. Mm-hmm. And I'm speaking to Brad Mackay, who is a cartoon historian. Speaking of collecting and how it used to be rampant, assuming all of these comics haven't been mulched, maybe that many of them have, I wonder if you could perhaps recommend, you obviously are a fan of Doug Wright oh, yeah. and of Jack Kirby, Kirby yeah. are there any other cartoonists that exemplify what you think great cartoonists? There's many, uh, too many to list. It's such a wide array, historically, everybody from Windsor McKay, who I mentioned, Little Nemo of Slumberland, George Harriman, Crazy Cat, poetry in the form of a comic strip. Frank King, who did Gasoline Alley. Charles Schultz has to be right up there. Great biography of Schultz. That yes, it came out just recently. Yeah, yeah, that's another fantastic example of a, of a strip that works on a number of levels. In terms of the pantheon of comic strip artists, that's right up there. In terms of cartoonists, Seth, I mentioned, he's done fantastic stuff. His latest book, George Sprott, that came out, Old Man, he loves writing about Old Men as his protagonist. It probably is most accomplished work to date. Chester Brown did a book called Luririo, which is a comic strip biography of his life, which, uh, dispassionate. There, there's no it's love much. interest. There's no real battle scenes, per se. It's just a completely unique take. I don't know how he managed to do it, but he takes something which is well-covered and well-trod and manages to make something, I think, really unique out of it. He's great. Joe Matt, who is a, he's not Canadian-American, I think he does great work. The Spiegelman... Ben Catcher is a great cartoonist. You see what you've done here. Yeah, yeah I, I, I need to cut that, cut that off and, and come up with the final question, which, <laughs> which is about the young collector. Yes. First of all, where do you find these? Let's just focus on the graphic novel sure. limit. And, of course, you collect who you love. Yes. But let's say I'm browsing through a, an old used bookstore and I come yes. across a yes. graphic novel section. I'm, I'm really not sure where the money is. You know, if I want a treasure... Who should I look for? Treasure monetarily or just a good book? A really good book from the perspective of a collector as well. So, yeah, something that's worth oh, a ton. You would go into a bookstore. There'd be no graphic novel section. You would immediately scour the humor section, and you'd discount all of the editorial strip collections, and you'd comb through for old editions of Snoopy books or, or whatever, and there'd be a lot of collections of weirdo stuff in there. So, I mean, that is still a huge... Garage sales are good for that as well. But what do you look for? Oddball old comics. Old kids' comics are great to get. It's less about value for me. It's more about reading them and re-experiencing them and having them lying around the house. I'm I'm trying to think of the value thing, though. Any old Doug Wright stuff, actually, I would imagine. Well, these would be collections of his comic strip. The graphic novel, per se, is a fairly recent invention or trend. So anything you're going to find is maybe not collectible, maybe first edition stuff. I mean, it'd be interesting to see what happens in the next two years. The thing I wanted to say that I didn't, and I got to say before, is if you're a book lover, 
good cartoonists are also really good designers. So you'll find beautiful, but Chris Ware is a is a, a fantastic designer. So his books are only not great to read, but they're beautifully designed. He did a, a actually. There's a good example. Actually, is something that's probably worth some money. Yeah. It's his stuff. He has an on running. It's kind of like an annual. He publishes this comic called um, Acme Novelty Library, which is a conceit. It's a fictional company based on like a company that would be from the 20s or 30s that would put out. It's very common to put out books that had kind of like comics in the middle, but you'd have pages of advertising on the outside for novelties and various things. That's where he got this idea from, and that's how he published Jimmy Corrigan and his major books. They were serialized stories in this on-running thing, and I think those are pretty hard to get, because even though the comic, that, a lot of that stuff has never been published, and if you like books, any of those, I have a complete run of them. He still publishes it. He publishes it once a year now. It's hardcover. Design's always different. You should have John and Cordoby actually in Montreal, which published the Doug Wright book. They publish him now. They're beautiful. They're fantastic. But I think probably at issue 21, 22 now. So the other ones, I mean, going back to maybe 2000, I think he started publishing, so about a decade ago. And they're fantastic. If you can find them, they're probably worth a bit of money. But they come in all, like, the first ones were, you know, three feet tall, soft cover pamphlets with all sorts of flourishes and design elements to them. And the next one would be you know, six by six inches square. And where yeah. would you go after them then? I'd find them in uh, in comic book stores. The Beguiling in Toronto is, is probably Canada's finest comic book store, if I can give a plug for sure. The Beguiling. Another great thing to collect in terms of that, seminal graphic novels, uh, Raw magazine that Francois Mouly and, uh, and Art Spiegelman published. That's probably the nexus of nerdy comic book collecting and uh, graphic novels. So those are probably two good examples sure. if, uh, if you're trying to hunt stuff up that would have a, if you really wanted to get appreciation of uh, kind of the genesis of graphic novels, that's what I would recommend. Great. Good question. Thanks very much for that. Thank uh, you very much for inviting me to chat. I'm happy to do it. I've been speaking with Brad Mackay, who is a well-known Canadian cartoon historian who's just published a book with Seth entitled... The Collected Doug Wright. And you can get it right now at in your independent bookstore. You can get it anywhere. I would recommend going to an independent bookstore because okay. it's better for the publisher. But you, yeah, it's it's uh, chapters and Barnes and Noble and uh, I don't know. Take your pick. It's out there. It's a beautiful red shiny book.